Thanks, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Really excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and then we'll go all the way to verse 25. We thought about breaking this down to be a little bit smaller, but we realized all this goes together, so we've got a lot of text to work through this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we will begin. Father, we thank you that you're good and that you love us, and we thank you that you have sent Christ, your infinite, eternal Son, the second member of the Trinity, to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to live the life we should have lived, die on a cross for our sins, be raised for our justification, and we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who indwells us, who helps us walk in holiness, who convicts us of sin, and these kind of things. So we love you, we thank you, we ask for help as we work through this text in your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, here's what I want to start with this morning before we get into the text. I want to start with some sentences that nobody says, okay? These are going to be some sayings or some statements that you've probably never heard anybody say. Let me just give you a few of these. Here's the first one, ready? I love Jerry Jones. You ever heard somebody say that? You ever been in a conversation with somebody about the Cowboys and they say, you know what I think the best thing to ever happen to the Cowboys was? Jerry Jones. You've never heard that. Every conversation I've ever had about the Cowboys goes something like this. Hey, how about the Cowboys? Man, I hate Jerry Jones. That's instantly where it goes, okay? You've never heard somebody say that. Here's another sentence you've never heard somebody say. Kid Rock is an excellent musician. You ever heard that? You've never heard that, right? Kid Rock is like the people version of an above-ground pool, okay? You've never heard somebody say, he's an excellent musician. Let me give you another one. You've never heard someone say this sentence, please tell me more about CrossFit, You know what CrossFit is? CrossFit's like a combining of working out and religion. And people who do CrossFit are really passionate about CrossFit and they want to tell you about it despite the fact that you don't want to hear about it, okay? That's CrossFit. Here's another sentence you've never heard. Socks with sandals are a good look for you. You've never never seen a man wearing business dress socks and sandals and someone comes up to him and says, you're killing it. You're killing it. That's exactly the look you should be going for. You've never seen that, okay? You've never heard that sentence. Here's another one. You've never heard this sentence. I bet Justin Bieber would win in a street fight. You've never been walking down the road or in a restaurant or on a a bus or something and heard somebody say, yeah, I think he would win in a street fight. You've never heard that. That's the kind of sentence you've never heard. And then lastly, you've never heard this sentence. My Prius is really a chick magnet. You've never heard that one. Never heard that. No one's ever said that. Those, those, Those words in that sequence have never been uttered by mankind. Now, the reason I tell you that is because those sentences to us pop out because they're so counterintuitive. We laugh because we realize, yeah, Jerry Jones is the worst. And we realize socks with sandals, that's not it, right? So we know within our culture, those sentences sound ridiculous and they sound radical. Now, here's why I tell you about that. Some of the things that Paul has been saying here in Romans 4 would have hit the first century context just like that. So when Paul gets up and he says, the Mosaic law doesn't save you, it just condemns you, that would be seen as crazy, That would be seen as radical. There was this idea in Judaism in the first century that more Torah meant more life. The more you had the Mosaic law, the more you were on your way to life, and Paul will turn that on its head. Or Paul will say things like this, Abraham was justified by faith alone. That would have been shocking to the first century because in the first century, there was this idea that Abraham somehow was righteous, and that's why God liked him. He went and got circumcised, he offered up Isaac, and that's why God liked him. But Paul's going to say no, he was actually a friend of God by faith alone before he did any of that kind of stuff. And then the Apostle Paul today will say another equally radical sentence where he will say, it is those who have the faith of Abraham that are really Jewish, not those merely who are ethnically Jewish and reject the Messiah and thereby reject the God of Israel. 
That's what Paul's going to say that's going to be somewhat controversial. Now, let me catch you up to where we are in the book of Romans. We've had to jump around a little in Romans just because uh, we had some sicknesses and such. So let me just give you a recap just in case you're just now joining us. Chapter 1 of Romans is the condemnation of the Gentile. Paul's going to say, even if you don't have the Scriptures, you still fall under God's wrath because you do by nature what you know to be wrong. Every culture knows that murder is wrong. Every culture knows that adultery is wrong, whether they have the Bible or not. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the condemnation of the Jew, where the Apostle Paul is going to say that even if you have the Bible, it doesn't do you much good because you can't keep it. Even if you have the Old Testament, even if you have the Scriptures and you're Jewish, you can't keep all those laws evidenced by the fact that you have the sacrificial system showing that you can't keep all those laws, so you fall under condemnation as well. Then the first half of chapter 3, what Paul will say is all humanity stands condemned. No one can keep God's law. Everyone has sinned. And then finally, in the second half of chapter 3, you start to get some good news. If everyone is condemned and nobody can earn salvation, then what hope do we have? And here's what Paul will say. He'll say, the only hope you have is that you can trust Christ by faith, the God-man who did actually keep these rules on your behalf, who did actually die on a cross for your sins, who was raised. That's it. Your only hope is to fall on your knees and just bow down before Christ and put your hope in him. And then in chapter 4, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's using Abraham as an example, okay? Why is he using Abraham? Abraham is like the father of the Jews. He is the Yoda, the Gandalf, the SEAL Team 6 commando of Judaism, okay? And what Paul is going to say is, let's take the father of Judaism and let's see how he was saved. And he says he was saved simply by trusting a God who keeps his promises. Simply by trusting a God who keeps his promises. And so Paul will continue by talking about Father Abraham today in our text. Let's start with verse 13a. We're going to just take the first section of this first. <clears throat> I've got a cold, by the way, so I apologize for my voice and for all the people whose hands I shook. Okay, verse 13a. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. I want to pause there. I know that's not a complete sentence. I want to say something that this text says, which I think is very, very, very profound. What was the promise in the Old Testament made to Abraham? All mankind had sinned. Everybody fell under the condemnation of God. God's way to solve that problem was to make covenants. And so he makes a covenant with this guy named Abram, later names him Abraham. And what he promises him is three things. He says, though you're old, though your wife is old, though child, you're beyond childbearing years, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you a dwelling, Israel. I'm going to give you a dynasty, that you're going to have more kids than the stars in the sky, than the sand that's on the seashore. And I'm going to give you dominion, that you will rule, you will be a kingly type of people. And the way that Paul summarizes that promise is this, that Abraham was going to inherit the whole world. Let me give you a quote from a theologian I like, a guy named N.T. Wright. Here's what he says. Abraham emerges within the structure of Genesis as the answer to the plight of all humankind. The line of disaster and of the curse from Adam through Cain through the flood to Babel begins to be reversed when God calls Abraham and says, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay? So let me say this really quickly. The God of Israel, Yahweh, Father, Son, Spirit, that is the only true God. He's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of the whole world, okay? Israel was meant to be a vehicle through whom God would send a Messiah because God's hope is not just that he would be the God of Israel, but that he would be the God of the whole world. That's why he starts, that's why the Bible starts in Genesis 1 and not Genesis 12. It starts with mankind generally before it moves into Israel. And this is also why 
the gospel goes out to all nations. God is about redeeming all people to himself. I want to show you some verses about this, okay? We're going to put them on the screen. This has always been the hope, that the God of Israel would be the God of the whole world as he is. Genesis 12, 2 through 3, this is the promise made. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the hope, that you wouldn't just worship God in Israel, that rather the God of Israel is really the God of the whole world and that the knowledge of him would be across the whole earth. Micah 4.2. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's some more. Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. That's the hope. Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. Now, before I read this one, I want you to, I want to say this. Assyria and Egypt will be mentioned in this text. Assyria and Egypt hate Israel, okay? They are some of Israel's long-term enemies, okay? So if you're like an A&M fan, this is UT in Oklahoma or something like that. That's what's going on here. Now, listen, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That there's this idea that in the future of where Isaiah is talking about, that God will be the God of all nations, and that Israel will join hands with their former enemies and worship. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, okay? That's the hope. That's the promise that's given to Abraham, that the world would look like Israel, that Israel would look like Jerusalem, that Jerusalem would look like the temple, that the temple would look like Eden and that Eden looked like heaven. The idea is that God's sphere, heaven, and man's sphere, earth, would overlap once again like they did in Eden, but better. That's the hope. That's 13a. Let's keep going. We still have a lot more text. 13b through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, and now it continues in 13b, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I want you to see several things in this. First of all, how does this promise come? How is this promise fulfilled? The first thing that verse 13 is going to say is not by Mosaic law, but it's fulfilled by faith. Verse 14 is going to give you the reason for that. Why is that the case? Verse 14 says, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Meaning, If God says, I'm going to promise that you're going to inherit the world, and here's how you obtain it, by keeping Mosaic law, then there's no promise. The promise isn't going to happen because we can't keep the law because of our sin. It's like me saying, I'll give you the whole world if you can jump across the Grand Canyon. Doesn't do you much good because you can't do it. So what Paul is saying is that the promise here to Abraham comes through faith, not through Mosaic law, because if it came through Mosaic law, nobody could keep it and there would be no promise. That's his point. And then verse 15 says something that's kind of interesting. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What does that mean? For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let me give you a few few illustrations. Sin is this generic rebellion against God, okay? 
A transgression is more of rebellion against a known command, rebellion against a written command. So all transgressions are sins, but not all sins are transgressions. Let me give you a few examples in this. So first of all, you need to know this. Guys love making fun of one another, okay? We as men are too insecure to just go up to another guy and say, I love you. And so what we do is we make fun of each other. That's how men show affection. I'm not going to go up to Jeff Ashley in the hall and grab him by both hands and say, look me in the eyes. I love you. It's too weird, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make fun of Jeff because he's my friend. That's how guys show affection. So if you've ever wondered why up here on stage we make fun of Tim or make fun of Carl or they make fun of me or Jeff or whatever it is, it's not because we don't like each other. It's because we do like each other, okay? We've had a few people come up and say, man, why do you guys give each other such a hard time? And you know who those people are typically? Women, okay? Because that's not how women show affection, Guys show affection by teasing each other and razzing each other and making fun of each other. That's just how we show affection. So in that spirit, I have two pictures to show you. The first is one that our very own Tim Hollis made of Jeff Ashley, and it is a picture of him that we're going to put on the screen, and it's him riding a unicorn in space. Okay? Now, what that means to us on staff is, Jeff, we love you. You're a great leader. Look how valiantly you lead on your magical beast. Okay? Rainbow. I've named it now. All right? Okay? So Tim did that just for fun. Why? Because we love Jeff. Now, before I show you this next one, this was made by a friend of ours, and it combines a picture of Carl Brower and tennis professional Andre Agassi. Okay? So can we show that picture of Carl? Isn't that great? Okay. You can take that down. That causes the opposite of worship in my heart, whatever that is. Okay. So that's how guys show love and affection. Now, when I got married, I learned that that's not the same way with women. Okay? I would tease, make fun of, whatever, my wife. And then one day she said, stop making fun of me. You hurt my feelings. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I felt like a jerk, right? That's kind of like sin. It's something that I should have known, and it still hurt my wife, and I still wronged my wife, but there was no written rule about that. It wasn't like when we got married, I held her hands and vowed to her, I will never make fun of you, okay? Now, there are times to tease your spouse in a loving way, but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, that's kind of what sin is. Now, let's talk about what a transgression is. A transgression is more rebellion against a known command, rebellion against a written command, okay? So I'll give you an example of that. When I was in uh, high school, uh, we went down to go swimming, okay? So uh, I grew up in Corinth, not in Greece, but in Texas, and uh, we went down to Lake Louisville one time, me and some friends, and uh, we were going to go swimming. Now, clearly marked where we wanted to go swimming was a big sign, and what did it say? No swimming. It was very clear, all right, very obvious. You couldn't act like you didn't see it. So what did we do? We, I don't know what the past tense is, swam, swummed, whatever. We were there in the water playing, okay? As we were swummeding, we were playing in the water. We're goofing around, making fun of each other. Hey, does the water smell funny? Yeah, and then you dunk their head under the water, and we're just, we're just being kids. Now, we go to leave after swimming in the lake, and we get in the back of my buddy's truck. He had a Chevy S10, which is a tiny little, you'll get killed if you get in a car wreck truck. And there were five of us, okay? So two, three people sat up in, the, uh, up in the cab, and me and a buddy, we sat in the back of the truck, okay? Now, at this point, we didn't know the laws about being in the back of a truck in Texas or seatbelts or whatever. We were just in the back of the truck. So we start driving home after we've already broken the rule of swimming, and all of a sudden, we see a police car come around the corner, okay? And we're sitting in the back of the truck, soaking wet. And so what we do is what any rational person would do, and we lay down in the back of the truck so he doesn't see us. We're like, ah, oh, we're going to get away with this. Then all of a sudden, we see the red and blue lights, and we're like, oh, no. Now we're laying down in the back of the truck. He's going to come. He's going to freak out. We're, we're looking like we're doing something illegal. What should we do? And my buddy said, let's act like we don't speak English. 
And I was like, though I agree with you, my blonde-haired, blue-eyed gringo friend, I don't think that's the best case of what we should do. So we got pulled over. <clears throat> the police officer came up, saw us in the back of the car, kind of stepped back and saw, uh, you know, saw us back there. And we're like, hey, sorry. And he's like, why are y'all laying down? Because we didn't know the rules laying down. We, we didn't know the rules about being in the back of a truck and all this kind of thing. Now, he was really cool. We didn't get a ticket. He let us go. He's like, y'all aren't doing anything. You're not drinking and driving or doing drugs or anything like that. So y'all can go. Just, you know, you got to be over 16 to be in the back of a truck or whatever it was. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because that is more like a transgression, right? We knew we shouldn't be swimming. We knew we were doing something wrong, as evidenced by the fact that we laid down. So what the Apostle Paul is trying to say is that that's what the law does. The Old Testament Mosaic law is a big no swimming sign, okay? And so what it does is it shows actually how sinful you are. The law is not to keep you from sin. The law is to exaggerate sin. The law prompts sin. The law shows you how bad you really are because you can even read the rule and not want to keep it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that the law, Gentiles sin like in the first way. They don't have the law, but they do by nature what's wrong. Jews sin the second way. They know the no swimming sign, and yet they swim anyway. That's what he's saying in verse 15. Now, verses 16 through 17. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Notice that faith and grace are mixed, okay? Notice that faith and grace are mixed. May rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay? You guys remember the Father Abraham song when we were a little kid in church? Okay, let me back up, actually. What do we do with our kids here at Parkway? Okay? Right down the hall, we are discipling children. One of the things that we do at Parkway is we don't just babysit your kids. That's what some churches do, right? They just have a big room of kids. They throw in some Skittles, and it's like baby hungers, hunger games, right? That's not what we do. We also don't just give your kids random Bible verses to memorize out of context. We also don't just teach your kids random Bible stories that they can repeat later, okay? What we want is we want your kids to know and love Christ. That's our goal. We want them to know and love Christ. If they know a lot about him, but they don't know him, we have failed, okay? And so what we do with preschool, with elementary, with youth, et cetera, is we disciple, okay? We teach them the overarching storyline of the Bible. We teach them who Christ is. We teach them how they can be saved, okay? Now, the reason I say that is because there are times when I was a kid and would go to church where you would just eat some crackers, sing some songs, and that was it. And one of the songs we sang was Father Abraham. You know this song about Father Abraham and how he had many sons and how many sons had Father Abraham, okay? Now, I'm going to stop there. I thought it would be funny if I would just for like for the next 15 minutes sing the whole song, right hand, left hand, and just keep going, but I'm not going to do that, okay? Now, there are things I like about that song and things I don't like about that song, okay? Here's what I don't like about that song. When I was singing it as, 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 singing it as a kid, Abraham was not my father. I was lost. I didn't have faith. So to have a room full of people that might not know Christ, they're not linked to Abraham. So that's what I don't like about that song. Here's what I do like about that song. What that song shows is it's those who have faith, in the, the kind of faith that Abraham had, who are really his children. Let me say it stronger. If you want to become a Jew, become a Christian. What this text is going to say is that what it means to be linked to Abraham and the promises and the covenant and the relationship with God is not something that comes through ethnicity. It's something that comes through faith. That's what makes you a child of Abraham. Let me read you some verses. Ephesians 3, 6. Ask yourself here, who are God's people? Ask yourself here in this, uh, as I read these verses, who is linked to Abraham? 
Ephesians 3.6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of who? Abraham. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Galatians 3.7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What does it mean to be a Jew in the New Testament? It means you have faith in Christ. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. What Paul is saying here is very profound. He's saying all those promises made to Israel were really made to one Israelite who is the Israel personified, who's Jesus. Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Romans 9.8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The first thing this text is going to say is it's going to blow open our categories of what it means to be Jew and Gentile. It's going to say Jew and Gentile are defined by whether or not you know the true Jew, whether or not you know the true Israelite, Christ, not dependent upon your ethnicity. That's what the text is going to say. Now, I want you to see something else here. I want you to see something else in this text here. Look at the end of verse 17, okay? Look at the end of verse 17. It says this again. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. Now look at this next little section. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What does that mean, okay? Before I tell you what it means, let's do a little theology. First of all, it is true that when God creates, he creates out of nothing, Okay? Meaning, for all eternity, there has only been Father, Son, and Spirit. There's been the one Trinitarian God for all eternity, okay? The Father is not older than the Son or the Spirit. They're co-equal, co-eternal. For all eternity, there's just God. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when God creates, he just speaks it into being, and it is, okay? It's not as though God has to go find a clump of metal in space somewhere and say, this would be really good for making hard stuff, so I'm going to use it. There's just God, and he speaks things into being. It is what's called in theology creation, ek nihilo, out of nothing, okay? Also, nothing, by the way, is not like a substance. It's not like God finds a clump of nothing and uses it to create stuff. There's just God, and through his word, by the power of his spirit, he creates everything that is, which means the way God creates and the way you and I create are fundamentally different. If I create a table, I have to go get wood, and I have to shape it into a table. I use pre-existing material. God uses no pre-existing material in creation. If I want to build a car, I have to get metal and I have to get rubber for the tires and I have to do these different things. That's not how God creates. God simply speaks it into being and it is. There is an infinite gap between you and God, okay? There's actually an old joke about this where some scientists go up to God and they say, God, you're not so great. We have figured out how to make mankind out of the dirt like you did. Didn't you make Adam out of the dirt? God says, yes. They said, well, we have found out how we can take dirt and we can make it into a person as well. And God says, show me. And so the scientist goes and he grabs a handful of dirt and God says, wait, first, get your own dirt. Okay? There is a fundamental difference between the way that God creates and the way that we create. Now, that's true theologically. That's not the point of this text. Okay? Additionally, there's a sense in which God calls things as not as though they are when he declares us to be righteous in Christ. Okay? I, Zach, in and of myself, am not righteous. I sin, I break God's law. God demands not that I be righteous, but that I be perfect and I am not perfect. But by simply having faith in Christ, he speaks into being something that's not true just about me. 
What he does is he looks at me because I have faith in Christ and he declares me to be righteous. He declares me to be perfect, okay? So there's a sense in which he calls things as not as though they are. He speaks things into existence in our salvation. But neither of those are the point of what's being said here at the end of verse 17. At the end of verse 17, this is Paul's point. That God goes to Abraham and Sarah, who are beyond childbearing years, and he calls out generations from her womb. He calls out generations from their lineage. That's the idea. That God goes to them and says, I know you don't have kids. I know you can't have kids. Watch this. Kids be. That's the idea. Okay? That's the idea of verse 17. Now, 18 through 22. Let's look at this. <coughs> In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. That's a kind way to describe Abraham. How old are you? I'm as good as dead, all right? Which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises or the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, I need to mention a few things here. What the Apostle Paul is now going to do is he is going to describe saving faith, okay? One of the things that Paul has kept saying is this, is that you're not saved by Mosaic law, you're saved by faith. And by the way, faith is not like this good thing that you do that puts God in your debt. It's not like he looks down on someone and says, you can't earn my salvation, but you, your faith is so good, you, I owe it to you, I give that to you. That's not the idea. Faith is not this work or this thing that you do to make God love you, faith is simply open hands that realizes your wretched estate to where you just simply accept the gospel, where you simply accept and look onto Christ, okay? But what this text is gonna talk about is the kind of faith that Father Abraham had. Now, we need to talk about this because there's a lot, of, a lot of little confusing things in this text. Let's start with verse 18. First of all, what does this line mean? In hope, he believed against hope. Here's what that means. In hoping for God, he pushed back on his own human doubts. That's the idea, Okay? It's saying, despite all odds, despite the fact that it seemed like the deck is stacked against him, he continued to have hope in God. He's saying, in hope of God, it was against man's hope. That's the idea, okay? That's the idea. Now, look down at 19. This is where it gets really, really, really tricky. Ready? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. What are we supposed to do with those lines? Is this text saying that the kind of faith you have to be saved, the kind of faith you have to have to be saved is perfect faith? What do we do? Are we saying that Abraham never had a doubt? He never had a mental struggle? What about the whole Hagar thing? Everybody know who Hagar is? God promises Abraham, you're going to have a son. It's not happening through Sarah, so he takes Sarah's you know, uh, handmade, and is like, oh, maybe that's what God meant, okay? What does this text mean by saying that Abraham doesn't waver in faith? Few thoughts on this. First of all, the issue with Hagar is more of a confusion on Abraham's part than it is a lack of faith. He actually, by going with Hagar, is actually trying to fulfill this promise from God. The problem with Abraham in that is more that he's pursuing it by works and not just allowing God to give that to him, but that's not really seen in the, in the text as a struggle of faith. In fact, God doesn't tell him that the child will come directly through Sarah until after the Hagar incident. So one, give him a break, all right? He's doing the best he can. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is this. Is this text saying that to be saved, you must have perfect, unwavering faith? Is this text saying Abraham, over decades as he's waiting, 
never worried, never thought he maybe misunderstood God, maybe that he never had a, a mental struggle, that he never had a doubt? Is that the point? I don't think so. Let me show you why. A few reasons for this. First of all, this word that's used here in Greek for the word waver, it's diakrithē in Greek, and it has to do with a general pattern, okay? The idea is probably not that he never had a mental doubt. The idea is he remained faithful. When he got knocked down in his faith, he got back up and kept having faith. The idea in this text and the emphasis is on the continuity of that faith. Let me show you a few places where this happens in the Bible. 1 Kings 14.8. This is about King David. Look what it says about King David. And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. What about Bathsheba? Right? So a lot of times what the Bible will do is it will talk about someone's general pattern of faithfulness. This text is not saying David never sinned. What it's saying is David was faithful generally. He followed God generally. He's not like the uncircumcised Philistines who don't know God at all. He's generally faithful, but the kind of language it uses is really strong. Or here's another one from Luke 1.16. This is talking of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. It says this, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Does that mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth never sinned? When Paul says that no one can keep the law, is he like, well, except for Zechariah and Elizabeth. I forgot about those two. When it says that they're blameless. No, it's saying that they're generally faithful. It's not meaning that they never waver. The idea is that they, they generally continue to have faith in God. Philippians 3.6, when Paul's describing his life in Judaism, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. How can Paul say that he was blameless? He just spent time in Romans saying that there's none righteous, none who seeks for God. No, not one. In Romans 7, Paul will talk about all the ways he failed under the Mosaic law. Why do these texts say that David and Zechariah and uh, Paul are blameless and perfect? Well, because this is something that's common in Hebrew literature. When Hebrews want to talk about someone who's generally faithful, they use terms like blameless. So the idea here is not that Abraham never had a mental doubt or never had a confusion or never had a struggle. The idea is he was generally faithful. He continued having faith in God. That's the idea. That's the idea. Let me, let me say it this way. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's disobedience. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's disobedience. The opposite of faith is not uh, doubt, but unbelief. Doubt and unbelief are different. Believers can have doubt. Lost people have unbelief, okay? So if there's a man and he stays faithful to his wife, let's say he gets married and all his life he's faithful to his wife, but there are days where he's tempted. There are days where he might want to cheat. There are times he has to get away from somebody else because some woman starts flirting with him, but he remains faithful to his wife. He has remained faithful. There's a sense in which he has been unwavering. That is different than somebody who goes and cheats on their wife. What this text is saying is when it comes to Abraham's faith, he's the first one. It's not saying he never had a wrestle or never had a confusion. He at least had a confusion with Hagar. The idea, though, is that he continued having faith in God despite all odds, despite all odds. Let me read you a quote from a theologian I really like, a guy named John Calvin, and I find this to be a very helpful quote. If you struggle with faith, you struggle with assurance, you struggle with whether or not God loves you, listen to this quote. When we stress that faith ought to be certain and secure, we do not have in mind a certainty without doubt or a security without any anxiety. Rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own lack of faith and are far from possessing a peaceful conscience never interrupted by any disturbance. Okay, so what he's saying here is when we say you should have steadfast faith, that doesn't mean that you never have any struggles. But look at how he ends the quote. On the other hand, 
We want to deny that they may fall out of or depart from their confidence in the divine mercy, no matter how much they may be troubled. What he's saying is faith has a, con- a-, a continuity about it. It continues, okay? What you need to know is that God's relationship towards you does not change despite the fact that you and your views of God change all the time. Your faithfulness waxes and wanes. God's faithfulness is steadfast because he's unchanging. So, one, you need to understand this text in light of the fact that more of the thing with Hagar was a misunderstanding than it was a lack of faith. But even on the days where I'm sure, being a broken sinner like all of us, where Abraham had doubts and worries and concerns, he continued to have faith. He continued to have faith. That's the idea that Paul's making, okay? Now look at verse 20. Look at verse 20 again. I want to show you something else. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, I want to focus on that last part because I think that's really, really important. Let me say it this way. You ever been in a gym before? Right, you ever been in a gym? I hate going to the gym, not because I don't like working out, I do. I hate going to the gym because there are a bunch of weird kinds of people at the gym. Okay? I'm now going to list what those people are. That's what I do. I give lists that are funny, and I just work through them. Number one, there's the yelling guy. You know the guy that yells? He lifts, and he yells. He drops it, and he yells, ah! And he gets a drink of water, and he's like, ah! And he just keeps yelling, okay? There's the yelling guy. That guy is always in the gym. I have seen the guy that wears headphones, and he will either sing or dance, despite the fact that no one around him can hear that music, okay? So he's singing or dancing, and he looks insane. No one else can hear the music, but he can, and he's loving it, okay? There's the singy-dancy guy. Uh, There is the guy that spends most of his time taking pictures of himself to upload on social media, and doesn't actually work out. So he'll do some bicep curls, he'll take the picture, send it off to Instagram, hashtag lonely, right? That's what he does. There's that guy. I saw a guy at the gym recently who was trying to dry his entire body under the hand dryer. You know the hand dryer, you wash your hands and and it dries your hands? He was all up under there, up in his head, on his back, all that. I wanted to take a picture, but I didn't want him to see me do that, all right? But it's just crazy. You see a bunch of weird people at the gym. Now, one of the things you'll see, no matter where you go, is you will see people who just like working out one part of their body, but they don't like working on their weaknesses, right? So there are some guys that'll just work their upper body and never work their lower body. And they end up looking like a martini glass, right? They've got these little chicken legs, but their upper body's huge, okay? Or you see people who are great runners. They run marathons, they love running, but they can't do a pull-up, right? Or you see guys that are these huge bodybuilders and they get winded going up a flight of stairs, and they can't run, okay? We hate, for whatever reason, working on our weaknesses. Now, look again at verse 20, and I'm going to tell you why this is important. Look at the end of verse 20. But he grew strong in his faith, how? As he gave glory to God. Listen to this. Suffering, and when your faith is tested, is a treadmill for your soul, okay? When we go through some type of suffering, which all of us will or are currently in, When we go through some type of suffering, here's always what we want to do. We want to get out of the suffering. We want to get off that treadmill. Listen, if God wanted you out of the suffering, you'd be out of the suffering. Why does God have you in the suffering? Why does he have you in the suffering? Now, listen, I'm not saying if you can get out of the suffering, don't. If you're sick, go to the doctor, right? That's fine. What I'm saying is when you've tried everything and you come to your wit's end, and you're just stuck in some type of test of faith or some type of suffering, and you're not sure what to do, and you're wondering, God, when will you get me out of this? Maybe you ask the question, why does God have you in this? If he wanted you out of it, you'd be out of it. Maybe he's trying to teach you that he loves you at your worst. Maybe he's trying to teach you, and this is why I think this is a big part from verse 20, your job when you're in suffering is not to get out of the suffering. 
Your job when you're in suffering is to worship. That's your job. You can't get yourself out of the suffering. That's God's job. Your job is to worship. Our highest goal as Christians is not avoiding pain. Our highest goal as Christians is giving glory to God, period. When you come to know Christ, you've written a blank check to Jesus. You don't get to pick how he fills that out. And what this text is saying is, what does Abraham do as he's waiting decades for this promise to be fulfilled? He grows strong in faith as he does what? As he worships, as he gives glory to God. That's the purpose. If you're going through some type of test of faith today, you're going through some type of suffering today, you can learn something from this lesson of Father Abraham, and it's this. What God wants from you is your worship. When you're in suffering and all you're doing is trying to figure out how to get out, I'm in this pit, how do I get out of this pit? Maybe instead you stop and you invite Jesus to come down with you into the pit. Maybe that's what God wants. Maybe he doesn't want you to rely on yourself. Maybe he wants you to keep being weak so you have to rest in him. Maybe he wants you to keep realizing that he loves you at your worst. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's not waiting for you to do better. He's not waiting for you to stop struggling. He loves you now. What we want to do is we want to get out of the suffering. When can I get back to regular life? Listen, this is regular life. This is regular life. Abraham grows strong in faith as he gives glory to God. What we want to do is we want to get off that soul's treadmill But that's not God's purpose. If God is the greatest thing in the world, and he is, then the greatest thing he can do for you is to let you be close to him. The worst thing he can do for you is to let you just run off into self-sufficiency. To let you run off into self-sufficiency, okay? There are things that God has promised you, and if he's promised you something, you can take it to the bank. It's gonna happen. If you know Christ, he's promised you love, he's promised you salvation, he's promised that he'll never leave or forsake you, he's promised that your sins are forgiven, you can take that to the bank. You don't have to worry about that, wonder about that, he'll do it. What do we do when we're going through struggles, though, on issues where he hasn't promised, promised us something? He hasn't, hasn't promised us that you'll have a good marriage, he hasn't promised us that you will uh, have great kids, he hasn't promised that you won't get sick, he hasn't promised that you'll have enough money, he hasn't promised those things. I found a lot of times that I find myself mad at God because I feel like he broke promises that he's never actually made. Because if it's not in his word, it's not a promise. God told me, if it's not in his word, it's not a promise. I do think God can lead you. I do think God can guide you by the Spirit, but he's not giving you promises that are outside of Scripture. Okay? So there are some things that are promised by God, and you can just take those things to the bank. That's going to happen. But when you don't know what God's going to do, you trust the person, or rather the trinity of persons, not the promise. I don't know when I pray for somebody to get well if they're going to get well. God hasn't promised healing. In fact, well, he has promised healing eventually when we're resurrected, but he hasn't promised that healing today. So when I don't know what God's going to do, I trust him. I trust Father, Son, and Spirit. I trust God when I don't know what he's going to do. Faith is not how hard do you believe something's going to happen. It's whether or not you trust God that he's good and loving and kind and cares for you. That's more what faith is. Verses 23 through 25, then we'll be done. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, Christ, uh, dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I want you to see two things in this text. <clears throat> First of all, what Paul is going to say is, this idea of Abraham being justified by faith wasn't just written for him. It was written for us today. The Old Testament belongs to Christians. These promises belong to Christians. We're the inheritors of the covenant. We're the inheritors of these promises. This is not just written for Abraham. It's written for you. It's written to encourage you. It's written so that you might rest in the gospel. Let me give you another Calvin quote. Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. 
All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We're surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. How was Abraham justified? By trusting in a God who keeps his promises and brings life out of death. How are we justified? By trusting a God who keeps his promises and brings life out of death, specifically the resurrection of Christ and then one day our resurrection as well. That is the same across the board. Paul is trying to say, listen, 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 listen. For you Jews who think you're saved by Mosaic law, for you Gentiles we just, who think that we're saved just by trying to earn God's favor, there's something in the human heart that hates grace. There's something in the human heart that wants to do better, that wants to earn it, that wants to pat ourselves on the back, that wants us to do our best. Paul is trying to say, that's not how you come before the true God of the Bible. You come before him with open hands like Israel did. He counts you to be righteous before you ever even obey. He counts you to be righteous before you ever even obey. That's what Paul's going to say. Now look at this last part of this text, says this. When talking about Christ, it says this, who is delivered up for our trespasses, dying on a cross for our sins. Now look at this next line. This is confusing to a lot of people. And raised for our justification. What does that mean? How does Jesus, being raised from the dead, affect my justification, my being seen by God as being righteous? I want to show you a little illustration. I want to give you a little demonstration. This comes from a uh, theologian I really like, a guy named Fred Sanders. He's actually a Trinitarian scholar. And so I want to show you this because I think it's really, really helpful. Okay? Here is a little card I've made. Can you read it? What does it say? It says you. Good. Okay, you can read it. I have terrible handwriting. I figured that three letters, there's no way I could screw this up. But it says you. Okay? This is going to represent, guess what? You. Whatever your name is. You can imagine that's on this card here. Now, the Bible for this illustration will represent Christ. Okay? I'll represent the Father, and by the Spirit, it's a Trinitarian work of God and salvation, by the Spirit, I put you into Christ. When you repent and you trust in Christ, your place, you, you don't matter anymore, you die at your conversion, you are placed into Christ, okay? And what's true of Christ is true of you. So if I take this Bible and I set it here on the music stand, where are you? You're on the music stand. If I take this Bible and I come and I put it over here on the piano, where are you? You're on the piano. If I take this Bible and I hug this Bible and I say, man, I love this Bible, what am I doing with you? I'm hugging you as well. If I take this Bible and I launch it up to the moon, where are you? You're up there on the moon, okay? The idea is whatever's happening to the Bible is happening to you because you are in Christ in this illustration, okay? So what that means is this. At the resurrection, God justifies Jesus, At the resurrection, God says, Jesus, you are righteous, and I will prove it to everyone by raising you from the dead. And by raising Jesus, he justifies him. He said, you have actually been righteous, and I declare you to be righteous. When someone repents and trusts in Jesus, they are put in Christ. That phrase is used throughout the Bible a million times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What does that mean? It means you are put into Jesus, and what's true of him is true of you. He's seen as righteous, so you're seen as righteous. He's seen as perfect, you're seen as perfect. He's loved by the Father, you're loved by the Father. He's sinless, you're seen as sinless. What's true of him is true of you. That's what this text means here when it says that he was raised for our justification. I'm justified even though I haven't been righteous because Jesus has been righteous and God has justified him and I'm in him. That's the point, okay? That's the point. Now, what I wanna do is I wanna pray for us 
as the people helping serve communion come up to the front to pass out the elements. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this text. Uh, I confess that it was a long text, so where I failed to get, get to dive into everything, I ask that you'd forgive me. I pray uh, right now for anybody that's struggling. I confess that there's just something in our lives that uh, makes us want to just try to earn it. There's something in our lives that makes us feel like you're mad at us despite the fact that you're not. There's just all these issues. There's so many doubts. When we're struggling, when we're having a test of faith like Abraham, we often try to make our own Ishmaels. We often try to run off into our own understanding instead of trusting in you. And so I just ask for help for whoever's struggling, whoever's wrestling, whoever is having a tough time. I just pray that you would uh, protect us, that you would help us, that you would guide us. We love you. We thank you for sending Christ. It's in his name. Amen.